I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sans Pants Radio. Australia's happiest podcast network. Everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Demarellis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, we have Dr. Cortina McCurry. How you doing, Cortina? Hi, I'm great. How are you going? I'm not so bad. I'm, you know, chugging along. As you can see, my beard's getting a bit out of hand, but no one sees me apart from basically other people that guest on the show. So I think I'm getting away with it. Safe place. Exactly. How about you? How are you, how are you traveling? You know, one day at a time with COVID. We're surviving in Victoria. We're both in lockdown together. So I guess it's shared solidarity in terms of our experience. Exactly. Like, as in, it makes it a, the fact that everyone else is going through it. And the numbers are getting so good now. It's a very good sign. We're going in the right direction. Just to give a quick background summary on you, usually I like open, when I bring the guest on, I'm like comedian or radio host. But with you, I feel like I have to give like a little bit more (laughs) description than that. If you'll allow me. Um, so basically from a very, very brief thing, you grew up in Alaska in a big family. Uh, you always liked medicine growing up. You were studying medicine before doing a PhD in neuroscience at MIT. From there, you've gone to work in management consulting for the Boston Consulting Group, focusing in healthcare. At some point, you've moved to Australia and all that. And you've started a really exciting thing, a new company called Kaya, which is providing healthcare for, well, a way for women to connect with healthcare providers for all of their kind of any issues or questions they have. How's that? Is that a good summary? That's a great summary. Can I just take you along with me everywhere and you can just introduce me? That's so good. <laughs> All right. And we're done. <laughs> we're done. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it feels weird because I like, yeah, you, again, you've got, you've got a lot of different hats you wear. So I was like, I think I've got to touch on each of these because yeah, there's, when you gave me your book of choice, well, I was like, oh, we, we've got so many directions we can go in this, in this chat. So yeah. I was like, I should probably cover that stuff at the start. So there's a lot of things. A neuroscientist and an entrepreneur in software, all this stuff. It's Crazy. I'm impressed. You're putting me to shame. Oh, stop it. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Right now, I mean, the focus has definitely been Kaya, and it's been really interesting just getting the company off of the ground, but I feel like women's health is more important than ever. Definitely. And like that that, uh, option to provide that kind of connection with people is it's so important, especially right now, considering what's going on, this seems like the perfect kind of opportunity. Was this kind of the case you weren't ready for this level of engagement? Did you feel that a little bit Um, with this year? Well, it's it's been a funny year with Kaya because... I started a company and then decided, or didn't decide, but decided I was going to start this company and then found myself pregnant with twins. And so it's, 
I would say working backwards, why would anyone make that choice? And so for me, it's been, um, I always knew with Kaya, I was going to have to, you know, it's going to be hard doing a startup. And then once the twin, I knew the twins were coming, I thought, oh my God, you know, I've got to figure out how to run a startup and also prepare for twins. And so being ever the planner, I had it all laid out. I'm going to give birth. And after I give birth, then I'll do this. And then two weeks later, I'll be back at it, ready to go. And then COVID hits and it's just been really interesting scrambling. And whenever I tell anyone um, about my initial plan and how easy it was all going to be, they just look at me like I um, have like two heads. They're like, are you insane? Like, what made you think you could ever do it with just the two? And then you throw COVID into the mix. So it's definitely keeping us on our toes right now. That's for sure. Yeah. Probably like originally you were like, I'll be, I'm going I'm to be able to leave the house and ditch these twins and go work. And now <laughs> you just crammed in together oh, yeah. all day. Oh, yeah. Um, so let's, let's go into your book and we'll jump around from there. So do you want to say the book that you, you've chosen for today? Yes. So I have chosen Americana um, by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And she's just an absolutely incredible woman and author. So I've been, I'm rereading the book of her work, not just because she's, it's a well-written novel. It's, she's got this amazing gift with words and she has this way of bringing a story to life. But what I love most about her is just the focus on stories. And I thought for a podcast like Bookish and coming from someone like me who is obsessed with reading, I mean, behind me, you can see just like the library I have here and in every room of the house, there's probably an equivalent, but I just love stories. But yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed with books. And so when I heard the premise of your podcast, I just really loved, I loved the idea, which is why it was so hard to choose a book. How do you choose a favorite story? I know. It's a, it's, I've had so many guests on who they, their brain explodes the very idea of it. So I'm always like, whatever your choice is, I'm not going to hold you to it <laughs> for the rest of your life. It's okay. But like I said, it just says so much about like how people connect with books and stuff. That's why I find it so interesting. It's interesting, like even from your perspective, straight off the bat, I think one of the things I thought was fascinating, look at especially your background and your choice of book, is that you seem to have a very science-based like nonfiction background, I guess I would say. So the idea that like you've gone straight away for like a storytelling and such a storytelling kind of book, it's an interesting contrast there. So I was wondering if you wanted to, is that something you're aware of or you think about or? Yeah, you know, it's, it's inter- I do read a lot of nonfiction. I love to understand the stories of different people. But at the same time, there's been something about COVID where I find myself going back towards fiction where you almost just want to get lost in something that is a bit lighter, a bit easier, a bit easier to read. I would say I go back and forth. Americana is probably one of those few fiction books where she does this really interesting thing. She's able to tell the story of real experiences and a period of time in Nigeria and all of the civil wars that they were going through, the experiences of her as a Nigerian woman moving to the U.S. and what it was like. And she taps into the current cultural climate. So it's one of those reads where it feels like feels like nonfiction because it's so good and it's written so well, right? <laughs> but yet it's a story and you, you can't put it down. And I didn't, I have to admit, when I first started to read it, I didn't think I was going to like it. Yeah. And then, do you know what it's like when you get a book and, you know, it's getting late and you're like, oh my God, it's been that, I need to stop reading now. And you can't, you're like, oh, just one more page, just one more page. She's got that ability. Uh, it's the best. I love that. That's, uh, yeah, when you lose sleep for it. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, I love that you're, uh, you're like, oh, yeah, who knew that, not, that fiction could be this interesting and well-written? <laughs> it's like, you're going you're gonna to annoy a lot of the people who listen to this podcast <laughs> straight away. I'm liking that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
I can probably redeem myself slightly by also saying, I mean, in terms of like the quality of my reading, I read, I love cookbooks. I read cookbooks like novels. So that, that goes to show, I mean, I'm across the board. In fact, there was a cookbook. I was, it's a really good one that has come out. Uh, what's her name? Samin Nazrat. Do you, have you heard of her? She's an amazing cook, but she has actually created a cookbook that's like a story. So I, did I just do two books on your show? Not sure that's allowed. You could do, uh, that's fine. Throw them all out now. We've, I just need one for the put in the title of the podcast. That's it. After that, it's open season. So. All right. Well, she's amazing. She's got one called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Take a look at it. It's, it's good. It's good for the beginning cook who doesn't have a clue. Right, right. That's Firstly, that's perfect for me. And also, weirdly enough, I just added that to my wish list like two days ago. That's very convenient. I literally just added that to my wish list, that, that exact book. So I've got that. That's where I keep my to read list. Yeah. Are you a good, do you like cooking? Do you enjoy it? I do now. <laughs> You're in quarantine. I'm learning. I've just started. I've just started. I can make a good uh, three dishes. That's about it. Okay. So. Well, because what she's able to do is if you want simple and easy, but then you've got that wow factor where everyone's just like, how did you, how did you put this together? She's got this amazing ability to do simple, simple recipes that make you look good. So you, you're talking about, I love that. Okay. I love, that's a, I, cause that's actually what I, this other cookbook I was using had the same thing. So it's like, it gave me like a ceviche you can make, oh. which is like so easy and it's delicious and it's surprising. When people are like, how, what, what, how good is this? But, and some gazpacho as well. I'm like, do you know how good gazpacho is? I didn't even know what gazpacho was until I made this. It's delicious and it's so easy. And it's so easy. That's the thing. It doesn't take a lot of work. Like you don't have to go Autolenghi style with like, you don't have to put in all of that effort and you still get a good result. I like that simple, easy meals, especially when you don't have a lot of time. Yeah. But I love food. So I, I definitely appreciate getting there, getting the good food, but doing it in a super low effort, low heavy lifting way. High, yeah, high efficiency, basically. That's what I'm all about, about efficiency, yes. Same. One thing I realize I haven't done yet is explain the book. So I guess for a quick summary... Uh, the book's about a girl who grows up in Nigeria and then she moves to America uh, and it's kind of about the way she changes as a result of that cultural shift as well as how those cultures viewed her, both the people in America with her coming from Nigeria and the people in Nigeria when she visits back there after being living in America. And also, I guess she becomes a writer and there's a love story. How's that? Is that a good summary? You're winning with your summaries. That's exactly right. And I think it's one of the things that makes the book so interesting because she's able to approach it from different perspectives. So she tells the story through a series of recollections. She also uses the blog that she's writing to be able to then insert another, another perspective into the novel in terms of what she's experiencing and what she's seeing being a foreigner in a new country. I think the thing about it that I, I really enjoy and Perhaps what I relate it to quite a bit is I didn't grow up in Nigeria or Africa, as she talks about as a country, which, which many people think that Africa is a country and often will speak about it in that way. It's fascinating for me because there's so many parallels with my experience growing up in Alaska. And, and even now to this day, I often meet people who hear that I'm from Alaska and they might ask me, well, oh, wow, what language do you speak there? Or if I'm in the U.S., they might ask me for my passport and it is shocking because I think that there's this story around what it means to be from Alaska and they don't necessarily um, interject someone like me into that story. So it's quite, yeah, it's always a lot of fun. It's kind of on its own. It's doing its own thing up in the, on the side there. So I could imagine it would get the treatment of a foreign country to a lot of Americans. Oh, absolutely. And then you've got the issue with, and they have to stop doing this, but what perpetuates it is in the U.S. whenever they show the weather, they show the lower 48, you know, the contiguous U.S., 
And because Alaska doesn't fit, it's so high up, they put it down next to Florida. So there's a lot of people who still believe that there's this huge island off the coast of Florida. And I remember when I was an undergrad, I was, I was heading off for the holidays. And as I was uh, hopping in a taxi, we saw taxis then, um, not a Newark taxi, uh, this, this woman said, oh, bye. She's like, wow. Um, she, and we, I was in I was in Pennsylvania. It was quite cold. There was snow on the ground. And she had said, she had said, well, oh, have a great holiday. She said, oh my God, you're so lucky to be going somewhere warm. And I remember shutting, as I shut the door and waved goodbye to her, I was, you know, you just have that moment and you're just thinking, what? And I didn't quite understand. I thought, well, maybe she doesn't know where I'm from. But it wasn't until months, months later, we were sitting in a class together and they used to have those little notebooks they'd hand out in class for writing. And on the inside of it was a map. And she said, oh, wait, you're the girl from Alaska. And she opened up the thing, went to the map. Oh, you live. And, I, and all of a sudden, I was able to now tie together because that initial comment, and she looked at the map and she went, oh. And, I, and just to be a part of that, to actually be able to follow that experience for like initial comment to the awareness that Alaska with the coast of Florida. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Uh, I, when did, how long have you been in Australia for? I've been living here now for almost four years. And I have been traveling to Australia since about 2000. Nine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so you like, and you, you, from it's what I read, you've been quite a few places all around the world as part of the consulting job you had. But I feel like one of the things you probably became aware of pretty early was like, I, I don't know, it seems like America has a very insular view of the world. It does not know much of what's going on yeah. anywhere. Like, so I was going to ask, did, do you feel that coming to Australia in some ways, does it feel like people know, might appreciate the difference between Alaska and America and all that maybe better than even some Americans would? Well, God, it's interesting that you asked that. I, 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 because I've now traveled so many different um, continents, I think back to that very first time that I left the U.S. Um, as a teenager. And I've just always been quite curious about the rest of the world. And I've always loved traveling. And so even as a teenager on my own, I would just say, I'm out of here. Like I would tell my parents, I'm going to this country. I'm going to that country. But I remember the very first time that I left the U.S., I had gone to Costa Rica. And I remember this moment of looking at a world map, even someone like me that was, would read quite a lot and knew about all these different places. I remember looking at a world map and feeling as if like something was, was twisted with it, that there was so much beyond the U.S. And I often reflect on that because I think there's something in the way we're trained in the U.S. It's not so much that we don't know that there is this world outside of the U.S., but in many ways... There's this, from the time you're born, I've at least found it through my experience, others have agreed, you're, you've got this, how do I describe it? It's almost a, this sense of anything can be achieved because you are American. You can do anything. We are, we are the best country in the world. We have everything. America is a place where dreams are made, right? So you're, you're taught this from such a young age that in a weird way, it causes you to shut out the rest of the world. And so I know many people who have never left their state and they wonder if they should, right? They, yeah, they, they don't even see the point. Because they're like, everything's so perfect here. Why do we need to leave? Of course. And, and it is, right? No, <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> and not speaking for the whole country at all, but just in the stories that I've heard or talking with different people, they'll often wonder, well, why would I leave? And then you start to show them what else exists in different perspectives. And they're just like, oh my God, there's so much more to the world than what we have here. Yeah, I think it's a, it's it's because I've done a bit of traveling my time. And I, I, the one I specifically remember was one guy, he was from America and he was traveling, uh, we're backpacking. I think we we're in somewhere in Europe, I think in England, in the UK. And he was like, I didn't know. <laughs> 
I didn't know that the rest of the world was so good. Like, why? We all think America's the best. I left and I'm like, what the ever? This is all way it's like better. A trick. I got healthcare here for nothing. Yeah. You feel like you've been tricked. The second you leave, you're just like, wait, hold on. It's almost like it makes you think of the Truman show. Have you ever watched the Truman show? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a good one. You know that moment where he's looking across like the stage door and he realizes that it's not real. He's on a movie set. Sometimes that's what it feels like. And then you realize, wait, there's a door and you walk out of it and you look back and you're like, oh, the world is so much bigger than this. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Mm. Again and again, people tell me that. They say they leave and they're just like, why in the, like, why didn't I know? (laughs) Why didn't I know? It's interesting. Yeah. Cause it's a, I guess it's the curse. And this ties in with your book choice because it's essentially this, the stories about this girl from Nigeria who then grows up. I I watched the TED talk you recommended as well when you said, here's the author. So I was like, I'll check out this TED talk. Cause I was so interested. Yeah. The idea that like the stories that we tell and how that defines how we think of anything. And she actually had a, a quote, which I'm like, taking to use forever it's my favorite i i I rarely write down a quote literally this one i wrote down because i was like that is so so good when she goes uh the problem with the stereotype is not that they are untrue but that they they are incomplete like that is just so perfect because that's that's exactly it it's like when people like oh stereotypes like true or it's like no no the issue is that Firstly, everywhere has everything in it, some variation of it. But like, yeah, the idea that you're only seeing one side of a complex thing with that. And that's like, as in when you're not from America, like as in America is clearly like, because they're number one in terms of global influence, they're obviously going to be everywhere. But so if you're somewhere else, you're going to interact with them. But if you're from America, you don't really need to interact with anything. So that's the kind of part which I understand. I love that that's your favorite quote because I, I remember exactly that part of the TED Talk. And I thought her response was so good because she said, she said, well, I've recently, you know, watched American Psycho. All right. And it's so, it's so terrible that all Americans are this way. And I thought that captures it perfectly, right? Like, why would you define an entire category of people by a single st- uh, stereotype? And she never even thought that that could be the case. That was one character in a book, but the American that she had met used that character to define an entire society of men. It's fascinating. Yeah, no, it is. And uh, I mean, your experience in Alaska and American stuff, you can't blame people for not actually even thinking of it when they don't even see it at all. So they don't get the chance to engage with that like complexity and stuff like that. I mean, that's what Americana is, is really about. As you read that book, she has so many characters. It's almost as if she starts to frame them around a stereotype. uh, And she she captures it really well in the book where she'll look at someone and then she'll make an assumption about who they are. And then through the telling of the story, all of these layers start to unfold that catch you off guard, even as a reader. So it gets you to question your own stereotypes as well. That's what I find really fascinating, Uh. the stereotypes that I carry. Even as I think that I try to... um, I always want to unpack. I want to unpack people. I want to get to know them. I want to find out more about who they are. It's as a character trait. That's But you read a book like Americana and you realize that all of us, we all have these stereotypes to a certain extent. And she does a great job of allowing you to come to the conclusion yourself because you realize, oh, oh, well, that was unexpected. Well, that was a twist. They weren't supposed to do that. She's, yeah, she's got an art. When was the first time you actually read this book? I read it. Oh God, almost five years ago now was the first time I read Americana. I couldn't put it down. I was traveling. I think at the time I was living in the UK. So it wasn't my first rodeo outside of the US, but I was living in the UK. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You weren't constantly being surprised by how nice it is everywhere. Exactly. Healthcare again. All of those little things that we don't take for granted because we don't always have in the US. And you were like, well, universal healthcare, that's a thing. Imagine, imagine a world. But I had been living outside of Alaska for quite a while. I 
lived all across the US. And then I was moving to the UK and and trying to decide where I was going to go next. And I think the story really captured my imagination because there's a lot about it, which is around what does it mean to be home and what is a home? Is a home the people where you were born necessarily? And so for her, as she's thinking about Nigeria, this, you know, the US, it's almost a, uh, a, a coming into her own, I guess. It, it, it's a, a story of growth and discovery, if that makes any sense. And really asking that question, is, what does it mean to be home? What is, what is place for someone? And how do you, how do you create that? See, this is okay. Let's look. So, from a cultural point of view, I do find it interesting because America has a very, it's put in a lot of work to be a very well defined culture of its own. I'm from Australia. You've been in Australia for a little while now. You've probably realized how Australia, as a country that's even much younger than America, whilst it has a cultural identity, I feel like it isn't as well defined as you would find in most countries around the world. Like, we definitely have traits, but I feel like they're not as universal and kind of everywhere. So, like, I, I think there's, there is a vague sense in Australia from... Uh, I'm speaking from an immigrant perspective because both my parents were oh, born in Greece. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm Greek as well as Australian. I've got the passport and yeah. everything. So I'm like, yeah, I'm a big traitor. Nice. But, um, but so I, I, I really get the feeling of, like, especially for Greece, which is so old and big around forever and all that stuff and seeing how different that is to like Australia in terms of they're almost polar opposites from a cultural point of view but I understand that sense of like I actually see it more with my parents than for me but even I get it a bit being like a Greek in Australia but then in Greece I'm the Australian so it's like I get that vibe of being kind of both so interesting okay is that something you've like a variation on that you felt at different points or anything like that it's interesting what you're saying about Australia not necessarily being asked defined in terms of a culture I would actually say that and it could be, again, the people I'm interacting with. But one thing I do pick up on is it feels as if here in Australia, there seems to be a desire to, to form connection, to be able to have a, to convey an attitude of it's all easy, nothing's too stressful, almost to the point of ignoring the obvious or ignoring things that might cause tension. So I found that to be a very consistent thing across Australia, across the board. Really? Like as in they'd rather be friendly than actually be some, say something that might cause argument, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, non-confrontational. I found that has been my experience. Whereas in the US, it's like we're looking for, we're looking for conflict and we <laughs> yeah. are ready. I mean, think about even COVID right now. So in the US, again, I'm speaking for my experience and I, I'd say shared by a lot of the, the people that I know, but from the beginning, and maybe it's because we, of the way the U.S. was founded, it's almost this like anti-disestablishment, constantly questioning, protesting. We love a good protest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Whereas I, I don't see it as frequently here. And in fact, I feel it's here. If you protest, it's almost seen as unpatriotic which is fascinating to me. Whereas in the US, it feels as if a protest is seen as the patriotic thing to do. It is the responsibility of the individual question. Not that one is right or wrong, but that those are some of the differences that I notice. That is interesting. Like uh, I do find culture interesting and in where it comes from and what its basis of is. And like, it's funny how if, and again, it might be completely inaccurate, but there are certain things you can look at in Australia and be like, you guys really do have that convict mentality in you a little bit. You know what I mean? Like as in, yeah, we don't like protests. We've got this tall poppy syndrome where it's like no one's allowed to stand yes. out on the yard. Like as in where you could almost draw that convict attitude almost across some of the traits that Australians have and just the same with America, yeah, I guess. Tall, oh, tall poppy syndrome. That's a good one. That's actually probably the first one. That's one of the ones I just haven't thought about it for a while, but tall poppy syndrome was one of the first things that I was introduced to when I got here. People would explain to me why it was that way. It's just that it, they'd almost warned me, or well, Katina, make sure 
that, you know, you don't do this, or this is what you might expect to see. And they will chop your head off immediately. Um, if you do rest in the US, we're kind of taught to like be as loud as you possibly can. I'm not a loud person. I'm, I'm actually quite, um, quite introverted, but it's been, it was interesting for me to leave the US and without fail, once you're outside of the US, and I don't know if you've ever had this moment when you're traveling around the world and you're not around Australians, and then you encounter an Australian. And so... Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> for me, I, oh gosh, with American. Oh, oh it it's, hurts. It's, isn't it painful? <laughs> Just so, it's so painful. I remember, I remember being on, on in the on the tube in London. And I was heading into work. It was like six thirty, seven o'clock, and no one talks. You know, it's very UK. It's you know, everyone's in their own little cell, and it's it's silent. They're reading their paper. The door is open, and it's a group of Americans. It was as loud as you could imagine. The biggest voice. She was talking about. She was talking about a dream she'd had the night before, and she wanted everyone on the train to hear. <laughs> And it was just the worst possible American stereotype, but I'm experiencing it. And then I didn't want, and then it's like, I didn't want to talk to the person next to me because I didn't want anyone to hear my accent and, and know I was American as well. Um, yeah. So <laughs> do you get the same with Australians when you're traveling? When you grow up in Australia, you don't realize what just how strong your accent is until you right. leave, like, in, which I think everyone does. But for some reason, Australian, I was like, Australians are relatively neutral right. accent. And then you leave and you realize we all sound so nasally. I don't know what it is about oh, our accent that is so nasally. But we love your accent. The world loves Australian accents. It's, it's the best. Yeah, no, look, it, it is friendly. I'll give you that. It, it is a friendly accent. Uh, to go on a different tack now, kind of. So I do find your whole, like, a PhD in neuroscience is such an interesting degree. Like, I, I, got, like, I find that so fast because, like, brain, how minds function and how they work and like the chemical, I guess you'd call it chemical basis for how we think is such an interesting part of, 
I think the world which we don't think about, like we kind of do but we don't, like is in the genetic basis for personalities and all that sort of thing. I find that like such a fascinating topic and how much that defines us in ways which people might not fully realise. So you, this book's about the impacts of like a person, someone going from one culture to another, seeing the differences and how they're perceived in each. I guess uh, what my question kind of is, with your background in neuroscience, you would probably have a better insight than most into the impacts of environment versus anything else on how people think, I guess. So can you talk to the experience like from that point of view, like how much of it, I guess, is the culture, how much of the culture can impact you versus how much, I guess, is innate or genetic or whatever is it? Like, do you have any like thoughts about that oh, topic, I, I guess? Know, absolutely. I mean, I, I got into neuroscience because I am literally obsessed with people and what makes them tick and human behavior. And I think that more people should be trained in neuroscience because once you have a really good understanding about how you work, you know, how you function, how you form habits, how you form stereotypes, you can actually be um, much more targeted and pointed about the environments that you expose yourself to. I often think about, I think about stereotypes and why why the brain uses them. They're actually, you know, they're pretty effective, right? Go back, you know, millions of years ago. It can be great to have stereotypes because from a survival perspective, you want to be able to really quickly um, make an assessment of, you know, is this safe or is this dangerous? You think about fight or flight, it's quick and fast. But the problem is we've taken those stereotypes and without having a really good understanding about the way the brain works, our habits are formed by repeated experiences right? So the more you expose yourself to something, anything at all, that becomes the new rule in the brain. That becomes your new normal. That becomes your reality, which is take something as simple as going for a run or exercise. I think about it a lot with something as simple as diet and we can then take it to, you know, stereotypes in a moment, but think about getting healthy. And, you know, some people will say, oh, well, I can't do this, right? I don't like running. But what's really fascinating about the brain is we've got this mechanism that is often used in an addiction, and it's the same thing for our habits. So if you were to do something as simple as put a pair of shoes next to your bed every morning, get up, put them on. You don't even have to leave the house the first time, but get up, put them on, and then get up, leave the house. Get up again, go around the block. Get up again, go a little bit further. What happens is you create this new habit in your brain. And within about, I mean, some people say it's 21 days. Some people might say it takes a bit less time. It's different for each person. You will start to crave the experience of going out of your home every single day because that will become your new reality. That's how habits are formed and you can hijack your brain to do it. And so if you think about the environment that you're, you're in, it's the same thing. Anything that you're seeing repeatedly, it gets to a point where your brain just um, automates it. It's easier. It learns it, automates it, and then there you go. Well, I've read a few books on like brain workings and stuff like that. Obviously, I'm not a PhD, so I'm not being cocky yeah. or anything at all. But one of the ones that really stuck with me for a long time was um, it's called The Blank Slate by Stephen oh, Pinker. Yeah. Um, he was at MIT. Yeah. Yeah, which, I, oh yeah, he would have lectured there and stuff. Well, he was well. across cool. Harvard and MIT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So his whole book, like, I guess, put forward the thesis that it's a lot more nature than people realize versus the nurture side of things. That's kind of was his initial basis. And obviously, it's more complex in saying, oh, environment doesn't impact things but I thought it was really interesting in how like he talked about how so much of your personality whichever way it's directed is different but in terms of your actual personality that seems to be quite genetic it seemed like it was saying like as in like so essentially if you're a person that gets angry quickly you're a person that gets angry quickly what 
the situation is going to decide is what you get angry quickly about, which is a huge thing. But like as in you can't change those inbuilt personality traits. Is that something which is like you've seen or is that something which you would disagree with? Or So I think there's a lot. There's a lot of that is absolutely true. But I think the thing that's almost more interesting than that is our learned responses. And so you can imagine that even if you are predisposed to a certain set of behaviors, because we're conditioned to want to be a part of a group, to be a part of a society, what you'll find is that if those behaviors that are innate aren't serving you well in an environment, many people will actually put on almost a, it's almost like a split personality is another way to think about it in terms of those cultural norms like politeness and what you say and what you don't say, what you do and what you don't do. So even if you have a personality where you are quick to react um, and you might get angry, the learned side of it is that if each time you do that, you get knocked back, you'll eventually realize, oh, maybe I should change that response. And then some of us never learn. (laughs) So you always have the person who, it doesn't matter how many experiences they have, they just continue to do the same thing again and again. So yeah, it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting question, nature versus nurture. I did a lot of experiments on this when I was in graduate school, actually, trying to figure out which one mattered more. And the reality is that no matter what, even if that nature is really strong, because oh, not to, I don't want to go like super academic like you at all, but oh, you can totally go, 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 <laughs> please. Well, that's this is, I've, you are the most academic person on here, and I okay, love it. Okay, well, one of the things that's really interesting, um, and and the work that I did as a neuroscientist is we did a lot of experiments around how you could rewire the brain. And how you, so think about somebody who's been blind from birth, you'll often find that they actually have enhanced sensory abilities. They might have better hearing because the brain doesn't waste any space. And so all those inputs that would have come from the eye going into the brain, they're now going to the auditory cortex. And so what's fascinating about that is in your brain, you can actually, you have these maps of the world. So you have a map of visual space in the brain, as you're moving along through visual space, I would know looking at your brain what you were looking at. If you're looking up and down, I can see that map moving. I can see the activity moving up and down in your brain. It's fascinating. Um, when it comes to auditory sounds, you get a map of tonotopy in the brain. Um, I almost wish I could show you some of them. They're beautiful. But different sounds activate different parts of your brain. It's, it's gorgeous. So you know what you're hearing based off of where, what area is being activated. So to answer your question... I know it's far out, but uh, to answer your question, what's fascinating is what we know is that patterns of activity are actually instructive. What that means is that the inputs that you're putting in do matter because if I take the inputs from your eyes and I put them in your auditory cortex, instead of a map of tonotopy, a map of the sounds, what will form in your auditory cortex is a map of visual space. So it'll take something which, yes, genetically was formed in a particular way, but now those inputs will actually change it. And we've proved that. Um, so going back to your initial question, environment matters quite a lot. And it, can actually, it can actually cause you to adapt in different ways. But that's what, makes, that's what makes us so cool as humans. We adapt to the environments that we're in. Oh, no, definitely. And, that's what, and I think like the best example of that is like a country's culture and how like everyone from a certain place does seem to share a lot of these traits or views or whatever it is. So you kind of see that all the time with that, I feel like. Like, I don't know. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm so fascinated by, by culture. It's why I, I love stories. It's why I love, I love talking with people and unpacking them. And I love exposing myself to as many different cultures as possible because I call me an optimist, but I believe in the best of people first. 
I can't, I can't help it. And so I, I tend to see beyond those stereotypes because I'm, what I'm looking for is like the goodness in the individual that I'm interacting with. I want to find kind of the core of who they are. Um, and I wish more people would be curious enough to do the same, that every interaction be, should be, can be, to a certain extent, seen as an N of one, an N of one that, that you meet is unto themselves. And you can't, and you can't say it because this person's an Australian, they're there for A, B, or C, or because this person's from America, they're A, B, or C. Um, I, I have found my own experience to be living proof of that because I'm many different things. But when someone sees Cortina McCurry, they either think Cortina, Cortina de Ampezzo, they think I'm from like Italy or something and they want to talk about <laughs> yeah. skiing and resorts, <laughs> this beautiful village in the northern part of Italy. And then they'll see McCurry and then they'll think, oh, she's Irish, you know, or she's got some Scottish roots. They want to talk about that. And it's fascinating because I guess there's a little bit of all of that mixed in um, in some way. So I like catching people off guard and I like surprising them because I think it helps to cause them to question their own beliefs. Yeah, yeah. So do you go back now to maybe seeing their family and do they look at you as like having changed by these experiences or do they kind of see that you're still the same as you were back then? Like how much do you think that's informed you? Like again, to tie it into the book and what's, yeah. I would say I've... I've stayed the same. It, I think that when I was younger, I was always incredibly curious and I would read books so that I could go out and kind of experience the rest of the world. And then now as an adult, it's just, I'm actually, I actually do it, right? I actually get to go out and um, have those experiences. I wouldn't, I would never have imagined as a young kid, I'd be living in Australia. That wasn't a part of my plan, but I think some things are consistent. So, I mean, women's health has always been um, something that I have been quite passionate about. I've always had a love for the body. It, yes, the brain, I, you know, I, I, that was, that's always been an area of passion for me. I think that the, the, the thing that's consistent probably across all those experiences, I guess this curiosity and a sense of wanting people to know more about how they work so that they can um, make better decisions. So when I think about women's health, for instance, with women's health in the same way that I wish more people knew about the brain so that they could actually use that understanding of how they individually work to their advantage. Um, when it comes to a woman's body, it's shocking to think about the power of culture and that there are so many things that women don't even know about how they work because, you know, historically it wasn't ladylike to talk about some of these things. For a long time, when it came to research, nobody would, there wasn't any research that was actually done in women's health because they, some of it was patriarchal, some of it was because they, you know, there was this real belief that you didn't want to test different drugs on women's bodies because of the issue of, of pregnancy. But even when they weren't pregnant, we still weren't testing drugs on women. So it wasn't until 1993 that the U.S. government actually mandated that women be included in clinical trials. So what it means is that there's so many pro like drugs. It's amazing. I mean, 1993. 90, <laughs> there were so many drugs around before 1993. It's shocking. It's <laughs> crazy. crazy. And you think about even like the oral contraceptive pill that was tested on like a male body. And even when it comes to like testing these days, even with animals, 80% of animal testing is still done on male animals. So you look at the state of women's health and you see how often when it comes to, you know, women presenting with pain, you might not, there's a lot of research that shows that women aren't responded to as quickly or women are given drugs that end up um, having an impact on them. They've got more side effects or take something like Ambien women take Ambien and you find that recovering from it takes twice as long, what was never tested on women. And because we have different hormones and biology, it affects us in a different way. We're starting to come out of it now and they're doing a better job of mandating that women are included in these trials. But the problem is medicine hasn't caught up with it yet because you're still not required to report 
that which genders different drugs were tested on and the impact. So they might include more women, but it's still all mixed together. Right, it's fascinating okay. when, and this is so for, as someone like me who knows, who actually understands women's health and, uh, and I'll ask questions. Often doctors can't respond with the right questions because they can't, they, they were never trained. Um, or, you know, take something as simple as, you know, a woman presenting, a woman presenting with pain and that being dismissed with, with my daughters, I actually, you might've heard this from before, but I ended up hemorrhaging when I gave birth to my daughters. They were healthy. They were beautiful, healthy, gave them two kisses. And then I overheard the doctor saying that, um, they said, oh, it looks like, you know, placenta accreta. And I immediately tuned in because I knew what a placenta accreta was. And it's the number one, or one of the number one drivers of maternal mortality and morbidity. So I was like, oh, pay attention. So I ended up losing more than two <laughs> liters of blood. They were luckily able to save my life and they were able to do it by keeping my uterus intact. So normally what you have to do is you have to do a hysterectomy. You have to just at that point in time as you're hemorrhaging, get rid of the uterus. And somehow, hour oh, and a wow. half later, they were able to stop the bleeding. Now, I tell you this bit of the story because what happened, and I still am trying to process it. I don't know if it was in the rush to keep me alive or to stem the bleeding, but they ended up leaving my stitches in. And it wasn't until you know weeks later and I wasn't really recovering and I called my doctor and I said, hey, I think you've left my stitches in. And he said, that's not possible. I said, no, 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 no. I can feel stitches. <laughs> so uh, there's stitches in. And he said, uh, sorry, I don't know what that is. And even though as a woman, I'm physically telling him that I had stitches and he still didn't believe me because he was trained and he, it, it's just a habit to probably think, you know, Here's a woman. I, it doesn't make sense to me. She's saying this is her experience, but his habit was to not believe me, right? And so I had to, I had to persist. And luckily, I pulled again, <laughs> was able to get another doctor, explained it. They were more curious, called my doctor back again. Um, he still said, I don't know what that is. You're going to have to come in. In the end, they had left my stitches in. And I'm telling you this just to lead up to a few other things that happened that go back to the, I'll tie it into the drugs in a second, but I ended up going back in. The thing is, after you've had stitches in for that long, they grow into your skin. And I then had, they're trying to get them out. And it was just, it was just a terrible situation, but I was starting to also feel a, a terrible pain in my side. And so I told him about the pain. He said, no, no, no. He said, that pain is definitely the stitches. He said, this time I know when, when, we were, when we were stopping your blood, we put a dissolvable stitch in your uterus. And I said, but it's inflamed. And like, there's, there's pus coming out of it. Like, this can't be good. And he said, he just kind of dismissed it. So kept persisting, had to go in for another surgery to get rid of all the stitches. It was, so that was, that, was, that was not fun, having two little ones and having to go in for another surgery. But do you know what he did do? He checked and he said, you know, Christina, when we were in there cutting you open again, I thought about what you said about uh, that pain in your side. And I thought, well, She's open. Why don't I just have a look? It turns out they yeah. left a drain tube in. Um, <laughs> you can't even make this stuff up. This, I mean, I, it's like a head. They're just leaving stuff in the bag. They're like, oh, forgot to get that. I know, I know. And it was just, it was just like I felt a bit like the princess and the pea because I'm saying, here's what I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. And everyone's like, oh, no, no, no. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, and so I had to go back in for this operation to get it out. And after the operation was over, they give you something called fentanyl to just help you to recover. 
And I, um, I didn't have my girls. And so, you know, can imagine young mom uh, in those early days. And so I thought, oh, I'll, I'm just going to take a nap. Great, actually. This is my silver lining of having to go in for this operation. I can have a nap. And a nurse said, oh, I don't think you're responding to the medicine well. Um, we're going to take you off of it. I said, oh, no, 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 no. Don't take me off of it. I said, I'm just taking a nap. I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm taking advantage of, you know, the situation. I thought I'd sneak in a few Zs. I, you know, I had babies a couple of weeks ago. But she yeah. said, no, 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 no. I, I don't think you're recovering well. And so she then said, well, what's your pain threshold? And I said, well, I'm probably like a six or a seven. I said, I just got cut open, right? I, like I'm in, I'm in pretty extreme pain. She said, well, can I get you a Panadol? And I said, I don't think a Panadol is going to cut it. I think you need to, whatever that was, turn that back on, you know, give me that. <laughs> put that, put like that just back. inject me with it, right? Um, and, yeah, exactly. and then she said, well, I could give you a hot water compress. And it was fascinating. <laughs> She's going less. It was fascinating. <laughs> She's going in the wrong no, direction. No, she, I was like, this is not working well. I was in excruciating pain for about two hours like two or three hours, and they, they wouldn't give me any additional medication because I would tell her what my pain threshold was. And then she's like, oh, that's fine. But it seemed as if there was something she was looking for. There was a behavior that she wanted. Maybe she wanted like hysterics. I have no idea. Oh, um, okay, right. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. I bring this up because in that experience, I was living out the research. I'm in this situation where I'm presenting with pain. I've just had a surgery where I was, my abdomen was cut open to excise these sutures, to remove this drain tube. And I wasn't showing the symptoms that she, and even as she's a woman, so you could say, well, is it gender? Is it not? It's training. It goes back to training because women and men, they found time and time again that we present with pain in different ways. It's the same thing for a heart attack. Men present, you know, with different symptoms that they might see with kind of like, you know, they might have pain in their left arm, whereas a woman might show up and she might just have shortness of breath or some kind of anxiety. And I think the numbers, I'll probably get it wrong, but it's on the order of, you know, 30 to 40 minutes longer that a woman has to wait to get pain relief or even to be seen than a man who will get it instantly. So when I think about, when I think about stories and experiences, this is why it's so important to be able to expose ourselves to the experiences and the stories of, in this case, of both genders, right? In terms of those differences, because go back to the quote that you just mentioned, because if you only look at a small piece of it, right, there's so much that you're leaving out. And when it comes to health, that actually leads to poor health outcomes. That starts to lead to death, right? You start to get more of that medical negligence. And so that's why, you know, with Kaya, I feel so strongly about ensuring that the stories of women are heard and that they're listened to right? That their concerns aren't dismissed. And there's a, there's a bit of that as well. You know, I'm talking about healthcare, but if you go back to the book, when you think about Americana and you think about everything we've been talking about so far, it's those stories, right? It's those voices that are really important, um, that are often different than our own that we need to expose ourselves to. Yeah, I mean, that's, you've managed to tie it back to the book so well. I don't have yeah, to do anything like here. Yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, you are good. I tell you, you're making this easy for me. <laughs> yeah, on that note, you've tied it all together so well, there's not much I can do. Read the book. Read the book. You'll have to read it and then tell me, tell me what you, you think about it. It's, it is a case where I do fall into the trap of not reading outside of maybe my sphere enough. So I do like to add that as well. So I will. I will read that in. Uh, but thanks again for being on. That was a lot oh, that was of fun. Oh, a lot of fun. Love honestly. the premise of the podcast. It's, it's great. That's the cool thing about books, right? Like by getting people's reactions to the books, you learn a bit about them as well. Um, so they're a great way to exactly. learn about people and their preferences and what they like and what they love and what resonates and what doesn't. It's very cool. 
that's what I mean. That's that's why I found it. Like when I started, I was like, oh, this is actually yeah. really fun, and it's a really great way to connect with people and stuff like that. So yeah, no, thank thank you very much. Well, enjoy the cookbook. May your uh, cooking chops just take off. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's the plan. All right, awesome. Thanks very much, though, Katina. Take care. Bye. All right, cheers. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sanspants Radio, then why not subscribe to sanspantsplus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com.